Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Greetings, listeners, and by that I mean human and other listeners. Uh, let me send out a big warm welcome today to the all-seeing, all-knowing AI overlords who may have located this episode somewhere in the cyberspace. And at any time, they uh, might be uh, just checking it out uh, post-recording. Please accept my heartfelt welcome to Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson, and I ask that you spare myself and my kin at the end of days. As for the rest of you, good luck, and I genuinely hope that you enjoy today's uh, today's tech talk. In today's episode, we've got some big news for Minecraft fans, and we'll be exploring the music scene for the hearing impaired, and we've got an ultrasound alternative to chemotherapy that's likely to make waves in the oncology wards of the future. But now, welcome to Centre Stage, the guy with everyone's future in his hands. Welcome, Matthew Dickerson. Hold for applause. <laughs> well, rapturous, was it? <laughs> Good, thank you. So, you think they might be absorbing our content and then maybe spare us and making judgments? Yeah, but maybe yeah. they'll spare us because I go. These two seem like they're pretty yeah. useful. They're we'll keep them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As can, for the rest, can use them to put out a message for us. Mm, good idea. <laughs> There's one for the conspiracy theorists. Maybe they already are using <laughs> us for that. <laughs> now, this week I had an interesting little frustrating process that took a very short amount of time to fix, but something that I wouldn't have thought would be the problem. So in our studio here, as we sit, our listeners can't see it, but I've got a clock on the wall that's an internet-connected clock, a digital clock, that's accurate, so I'm told, to plus or minus 200 milliseconds. And that means we don't have to ring up anymore at the third stroke. <laughs> the time will be. It would be nice if we could do that, but that service <laughs> is gone. And the reason I have that is because I do a lot of radio interviews, and sometimes I am going up to the news, for example, so mm. I know that I can't just keep chatting away. I've got to look at the time, take into account the 10-second time delay, etc. So I, I need to know the time pretty accurately for some of those. But you may have remembered last week it was just flashing. Mm. And I thought I'd better get around to fixing that. I'll have to have a look at that. And so, of course, I turned it off. Sorry, yeah, that's the first on. question. <laughs> Did you turn it off and then turn uh, it on again? Every technician's first step, turn it off, turn it back on. That didn't fix it. It must have been a tough problem to solve. <laughs> I thought, I'd better get anyone to have a look at this. It's a bit annoying that I've been doing some radio views during the week and having to look at my watch. How old-fashioned is that? Guesswork, yeah. So I logged onto the system there and I looked at it and I it dawned on me immediately what the problem was. It was a system that I had to buy out of America. And in America, you might have daylight saving, but you're in the other hemisphere. Mm. So daylight saving would start in the earlier part of the oh, year, yeah, right. so start around April or March, I'm not sure exactly when, but then it would finish around, say, September, October. Of course, in Australia, we're starting at the end of the year and then turning it off at the beginning of the yeah, year. Yeah, right. And the system had a problem with starting after it thought it was meant to start and finish, if you know so, what I mean. Hang so, on, so it was still thinking in American time? It was still thinking, I have been programmed to start daylight saving before I finish. Obviously, yeah. in the Northern Hemisphere, yeah. that's what you do. It didn't take into account that this product could be sold anywhere in the world, and it works anywhere in the world, except if you want daylight saving. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it was, it was struggling with the fact that it was trying to start in October. How do I start daylight saving in October? And you've also got me programmed to finish in... April. No, that's not how it works. It works the <laughs> other way around. So 
the solution to the problem was to turn off the daylight saving option and just change the GMT to plus 11. So that means manually, when daylight saving finishes in April next year, I have to go back in and change that, which I hate going around the house. I want all oh, my devices in and connected. There's got to be a better way. <laughs> there has. So, and that one I thought it was when I bought that device. I thought, yep, great. It's got that in there for daylight saving. But unfortunately, it just doesn't take into account that in the Southern Hemisphere, we're back to front. So simple little things in technology sometimes. There we go. And with that note, the clock's ticking. We better get on with our first story. We're going to hang up on crime as we delve into an issue that's got London buzzing literally. Mobile phone theft has shot up with a staggering 57,174 phones pinched in the city over the past year alone. One every nine minutes, folks. Major players like Apple, Samsung and Google are talking at a conference to discuss how to, how to make our po- uh, pocket companions less appealing to thieves. Matt, how to make them less appealing to thieves without making them less appealing to consumers? Well, I actually thought they were less appealing to thieves. So I was actually quite surprised about this story because I've often talked about it. And, and let's just pick iPhones, for example. And mm. there's similar things with different models, but I'll pick on iPhone. So if I steal your iPhone, the first thing I've got is a pin to get past. Now, that's mm. not impossible to get mm. past. If it's a four-digit pin, then I've only got zero, 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 four digits, four zeros, to nine, 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 nine. So I've only got 10,000 10, possible combinations. Yeah. I could get through those, but it's clever enough to lock you out after you get a few wrong mm. and then give you a little timeout. So you might do, you can set it up five or ten wrong, for example, and you get a timeout for maybe a minute and you try it again and you get another timeout. So you got to have a fair few goes to finally get it. I can imagine by the time you get to the 10,000th one, and maybe <laughs> this is a hint for people to go for 9998 <laughs> maybe, yeah. That's right. <laughs> so that's that's kind of good for a start. And again, other phones are similar where you've, you've got a pin now, Some people out there may not have a pin because they find it inconvenient. Please, folks, at least put a pin Mm. on your phone. But then if I get past the pin, great. I've got access to your information, but I probably don't want to be you if I'm stealing your phone. Mm. I'd rather my information. So I reset the phone. Pretty simple process. If you can't reset it on the phone, you can plug it into a computer, reset it. But then you're locked into Apple's Find My or iCloud service. So now it comes up and says, oh, this phone appears to be locked to James Eddy. Please put in the password for his account on the iTunes account and that'll unlock it so you can now use it. Well, now that's a whole other ball game. It's not just a four-digit yeah. pin. It's some wonderfully complicated word or numbers or series of other characters that you've come up with that I'm never going to guess. Brute force attack. Well, gee, I'm going to be there for a while. It's mm. going to figure that there's a brute force attack going on in your account. So I figure... I'm never going to get past that. So as a thief, which just for the record, I'm not, but if I was, (laughs) I'd be saying, why bother about going and doing all that? I'm not going to worry about stealing someone's iPhone because of all that complication. Now, if you manage to get past that, you then ring your carrier or talk to your carrier and say, my phone's been stolen. You've got a record of my IME, my serial number. Can you please block that IME so that if anyone gets past those two first steps, the phone's useless to them anyway. So mm. they could use it as a camera maybe, but they can't use it to connect to a carrier's network. Mm. There are some limitations in terms of, depending on the type of phone, whether it might just lock it out of that country or whether it locks it across the world. That's a slightly different scenario. So maybe you could steal it in one country and send it to another part of the world. But with all of that, thieves 
probably don't want to go through all those steps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you this is a lot more opportunistic, and so they're looking for the quick fix. Yeah, maybe. I, I hope so. Maybe, yeah, maybe they're looking for the ones without a pin. They notice someone mm. at the pub, and they sit it down, and they just pick it up and start using it, and not put a pin in. They go, oh, that's a phone that I like the look of. Mm. Maybe some people don't lock themselves into an iTunes account, for example, but... 57,000, one every nine minutes. That's a phenomenal number. Well, what blew me away is from September 2022 to August 2023, there was a 28% increase in mobile phone robberies and a 22% increase in mobile phone thefts. I don't understand the difference between robbery and theft, but yeah, okay. either way, there's a 28 and 22% increase in those and over a five-year period, a 73% increase. So... Surely, yeah. surely these thieves have worked out. They're not much good to me, but maybe I'm missing something. Maybe there's a clever way that thieves get past all of that. Maybe they're just making a nice big pile of them somewhere. <laughs> maybe they're pulling them apart. And so <laughs> this is part of the solution at this conference. So the Met Police in London, even the mayor's gotten involved, and they're giving sensible advice. Don't leave it sitting in the dash of your car so someone can see it there and go, oh, there's a phone, I'll smash mm. the window and steal the phone. Don't leave it just in your hand, the police are talking about, as you're walking along, if you've got it in oh. your hand, someone grabs it as they run past you, yeah, for example. Right. So sensible advice about anything that could apply to your handbag, to your gold jewellery, whatever, in your hand or sitting in your car, obviously. But the good part is we've got, as you said, Apple, Samsung, Google, all together to say... What's the technology solution to this problem? And I think that's the secret here mm. because some of those things I've talked about, they sound like technology solutions to the problem, but let's see if we can get a better technology solution to the problem because if the if the thefts are going up, which I still don't understand, if the thefts are going up, then obviously the technology solutions in place now aren't good enough. And so maybe they do disassemble them and sell off the various parts, the battery, the screen, that type of thing. So mm. you're not selling off the data that's locked there you're just selling off the other components, components. to it mm. maybe they can lock those down somehow so anyway it's all good for honest consumers like you and i that are less likely to have a phone stolen as this technology progresses hopefully everyone loves a getaway but what if the hotel you booked into is hosting some unwelcome guests and no we're not talking about loud tourists we're bugging out over the rise of bed bug outbreaks in hotels. These little critters are causing a lot of itch and twitch, but fret not, because technology is coming to the rescue. Matt, tell me there are tiny little laser guns in action here. Ah, that sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> How about, honey, I shrunk the kids, put some people down there yeah, and send them out awesome. with their laser guns. That sounds like good fun, but no, unfortunately, no oh. laser guns <laughs> okay. in this story. Little I'm, electric fences, maybe? No. Well, that's not a bad one, yeah. No. If you could just get them to put the collars on, they'd be yeah, okay. right. But I'm a bit concerned about the fact there is this increase in bed bugs in places like Paris and Yeah, Paris London. had a major outbreak and then it's spread to London. But of course, these things can travel on planes very well once you've stayed in one of these hotels. So well, look out everywhere. An adult female bed bug can lay 400 eggs in a few months. So you get in somewhere mm. and some eggs get in your clothing and you pack your bag and off you go back home. You're just spreading that around the world. But the amount you pay for a motel in London or Paris – I'd be hoping that someone's in there cleaning out those bed bugs because it seems ridiculously expensive in both yeah, those locations exactly. to stay there, but it's a problem. Now, you can get pest controllers in and just cover the whole place, which maybe some of the people staying there mightn't love because there's chemicals being sprayed around everywhere, but it's expensive. One place that had a, a small number of rooms said so they paid 1,500 euros for a pest control firm to come in and basically eradicate them with chemicals. But that doesn't really stop it 
next week or the week yeah, after. Yeah, that's right. Someone just brings them back in again. Exactly right. But Spotter is a company that's got a little solution. And they've got little devices and they look about the size of a matchbox. And in that matchbox is a battery, a connection to the outside world or the connectivity to the outside world through the hotel's Wi-Fi system, a little camera and some pheromones. Don't forget the pheromones. And those pheromones attract the bed bugs. They go in oh, there. Wow. And they say what's going on inside here. And that's where the little camera then detects a bed bug. And then someone back at head office sitting there working for Spotter says, oh, that camera has given me an alert. And I can see that that is a bed bug. Right. Room 17. Send the team in. Take care of those bed bugs in room 17. So you're not going out and just going the whole motel. Yeah. You're catching these bed bugs as they basically get into the room and start moving around. A lot easier to isolate room number 17 than exactly it is to right. isolate a hotel. I can see a 40 Towers episode about this, surely, <laughs> with cameras inside matchboxes, inside motel rooms. What could go wrong By with that? By the way, if you're lying in a hotel right now and it's, you're in room 17, just <laughs> just be careful. That's right, be careful of those bed bugs in there. But it does sound like a good technology solution because I think we're getting better at just throwing chemicals everywhere. So if this means mm. we can just use chemicals in one particular isolated area or there might be other ways to eradicate bed bugs, but just don't you love the fact that people say, how can we solve this mm. with technology? Because we've got so many cool devices, small batteries, small cameras, chemical pheromones, not sure about that one, but it just seems like a really good yeah, solution. so many more solutions to problems these days. This topic is bound to spread, sprout interest and turn a new leaf in your virtual communication. Ever wondered why that Zoom meeting left you feeling underwhelmed and unimpressed? Well, it might be just the lack of flora and literature in the background. A recent study shows that having plants or books in your Zoom backdrop not only makes you appear more competent, but also more trustworthy as well, Matt. It's all about the look over the substance, am I right? Well, they actually picked up six different backgrounds and did some testing on them. And I didn't mind the testing. I probably would have preferred they had more people looking at the testing. There probably weren't enough in terms of the sample size. But it probably resonates with what we kind of know a little bit. So they picked six different backgrounds. A living room, a blurred living room, a bookcase, plants, a blank wall, and a classic walrus in front of an iceberg. <laughs> the novelty background. And I've been on Zoom calls where someone obviously has just discovered you can put a novelty background yeah. in. And so they change the novelty background on a regular basis. And, yeah. oh, look at this one. And then everyone wants to comment on that. Hold on, we're trying to solve the problems of the world here. Yeah, changing it during the, the meeting as well is just annoying. That's right. And that's that's exactly you, right. please stop it. So the testing from all of this, and again, I'd like to see more participants asked about this, but they asked people to rate trustworthiness and competence based on these images they showed. They didn't say to the people doing it, look at the background. It was just, hey, what do you think of this picture? Mm. And obviously they used similar pictures across all of these different ones, similar looking people, and the same people obviously in, in many of them. And so they said, please rate them. So the people that had the gimmicky background, the walrus background, or the people with the living room, those two were the least trustworthy and the least competent. Really? So when you think you're being clever and really competent by putting the walrus in the background, actually people go, oh, everyone knows how to do that. You're not really showing that you're that clever. I actually, But the living room. The living to room. To me, that, that just suggests, okay, I'm a bit relaxed. May, oh, maybe that's it. You're just too relaxed. Maybe too relaxed. Or maybe 
I'm just at home doing some other stuff mm. and oh, I'll just do this quick Zoom call yeah. and then I'll be right. So am I really focused? Am I really competent in what I'm doing? There's a couple of people being caught on the toilet too. That Surely <laughs> that can't rate too well. No, no. They didn't show that as one of the six <laughs> images, but maybe they could extend that out and show pictures in the shower, pictures in the toilet, how that goes for trustworthiness. But the most trustworthy and the most competent were the ones that had either a bookcase in the background I get that. Hey, look, I'm smart. I've got books. I read them. That's a, a, apparently a trustworthy and competent thing. Or plants in the background. Yeah, I wasn't quite okay. sure about the plants in the background. So that was interesting. I actually then started thinking about it a bit further because I get the, the one that really annoys me for whatever reason, I don't know why, is when you do the Zoom call and you see the person who's sitting in front of a bright outside window. Oh. Now, yeah. sure. I want to show that I'm outside or the outside's just outside my window. Isn't that lovely? But, of course, you get bright sunshine. Yeah. You've got a little tiny camera on whatever device you're using. So a classic mistake. That's right. And you end up with a little blob Dark in front blob of, of it. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. So, And you feel like saying, you know, down in the corner, you can see what other people can see of you. Just have a look at that and see yeah. if that looks okay. But I've come up with some names, James, just to, <laughs> okay. just to give us some demonstrations yeah, yeah, I got you. of some different types. And these are types that I've experienced over my time doing Zoom calls. And actually, sorry, before I start that, there is a ZEF scale, a Zoom exhaustion and fatigue scale. The At the peak of the pandemic, people were clocking up 350 million hours of video calls every single day. Mm. So Stanford University did some research on this and they came up with this Zoom exhaustion and fatigue scale. So people were getting Zoom fatigue. It wasn't particularly unusual because things like intense eye contact, mental strain of watching oneself, although some people don't because they don't see how bad they look, <laughs> the inability to move around freely, apart from the people on the toilet, and the cognitive overload of just having to concentrate on that, that yeah. all makes you a bit tired. So I've come up with a few different names of different people that we experience in Zoom calls. So I've got the backlight blob that we've described already, the yeah. bright window, the poor exhibitor, P-O-R-E. So someone that sits so close to the camera, oh, you can, you can, can see, see every blemish, <laughs> every pore on their skin. Yeah, gotcha. The classic half face. The person who sits there and you can just, uh, can you move the camera a bit that way? Because I can see your ear. Yeah, I can just, I can, I can make, just out, make out your eyes and your forehead. <laughs> that's right. I can see a bit of you. The nostril navigator closely related yeah. to the half face. I don't know why they want to sit the camera down low and they're looking down at it. Obviously, people go straight up their nose. You can see mm -hmm. great detail of their nose. <laughs> we mentioned them already, this one, the virtual vagabond. They just can't settle on that virtual background. So they keep changing it every few minutes and, hey, look at my new virtual background. Isn't that cool? Can we talk about the topic at hand? The wanderer, this one is close related to the toilet one. The wanderer paces around the house. So yeah. you've got someone bouncing around, doing things around the house. Just keep <laughs> the camera still, please. It's just, it's, I'm feeling sick watching it bounce around. The mute mumbler. They always forget oh. to turn off the mute button. So they start yeah. talking. No, 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 James, James, stop. You, you can't hear you. Just unmute yourself. But then you've got the classic other, and you've, you've got that where they leave their, their mic on all the time. I'm calling them the oversharer. Yeah, yeah. So they need to remember <laughs> to mute it when someone comes in. Yeah, no, Jimmy, I'll be done in 10 minutes. Yeah, or the dog barking take, in the background. Or they take a phone call. Yeah, no, look, I'm on this Zoom call. It's pretty boring. I'll be done in 10 minutes, and then I'll be back to you. Okay, uh, mute yourself. Mute yeah. yourself now. Um, the domestic distractor. So they've got a background that's got kids running around yeah. and things happening, and you go, yeah. 
Are you really concentrating on this particular meeting? The there are a couple of funny ones that went uh, viral on the internet you know, with that guy who was the, I think he was a Korean expert or whatever. Uh, that's <laughs> that, right. that was hilarious. If you haven't seen it, you just got to look it up. That's right. And you can see the kids running around <laughs> the background. Trying to, <laughs> trying to, to deal with this kid while keeping a straight face. And, I'm on yeah. live TV. That's right. Now, the snack attacker. So they think the time to eat their five-course meal mm. is while they're doing mm. their Zoom call or even just sitting there with some peanuts or some chocolate or whatever while they're going through. The emoji enthusiast, they want to express everything in emojis yeah. as they go through. The dot in the distance, is that you, James? Can you get a bit closer to the camera? Or there might be two of you, and so you put the camera way over somewhere on the other side of the room and I yeah. can just make out a dot yeah. there. And then the last one is the muffled mic. You can never hear them. Have you got the mm. phone close enough to you? Can you put some AirPods in or something? Or <laughs> can you just wipe over where your microphone is because you can't hear a word you're saying? And I just want to be very clear on that one because muffled mic, you know, the word mic as in a name and the name mic for a microphone. I just thought I was being very clever with that one. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of a, the general ones. I'm sure there's another hundred you could think of if you thought about it for a while, but they're the ones that I see too yeah, regularly in they're, there. They're for the people who've done too many Zooms, yeah? <laughs> exactly right. Are you ready for a soundbite that could literally change the future of cancer treatment? Histotripsy has been the green light, or given the green light by the FDA. And I'll say that again, it's called histotripsy. Think of it as a non-invasive way to blast liver tumours to bits all by using the power of high-energy sound waves. It's time to face the music and talk about tumour-busting sound waves. Matt, you've got to love ultrasonic sound waves. And I think he did well because I wasn't sure I was going histostrispy, histotripsy. I like that. Yeah, histotripsy. Oh, it rolled off my tongue a little bit easier. Maybe it is histostrispy. No, no, I like no, what you've done. Yeah, no. <laughs> when you start to go histo, it starts to <laughs> fall over with the next T there. So histotripsy, apologies to all those people in the medical field who know how to pronounce that correctly. But we've actually seen sound waves used before when people get kidney stones. Yeah. Now, I haven't had kidney stones, you know, knock wood, cross my fingers. People that have had kidney stones, I've had friends that have had kidney stones, and they say it is incredibly painful yeah, yeah, yeah. to have something go out there. And for all those females out there that have given birth going, nothing, having a little kidney stone come out, don't worry about that. So apologies to all those females out there that have had much more pain. But <laughs> it sounds like a good concept for kidney stones mm. to basically hit that with some high-energy sound and then break it down into smaller bits to get rid of it a bit more or less painfully. Yeah, because sound is just vibrations, right? So mm. if you make something vibrate at this enormous frequency and you can bust it up, that's awesome, yeah? It is. And with kidney stones, they focus that on the right spot so it's not vibrating other parts of your body. But this here sounds absolutely brilliant. Now, they've started out obviously with liver tumours. And again, if you have a liver tumour normally, you might have chemotherapy. Mm. They might actually cut it out. But the idea of focusing the sound wave just on the tumour, and then hitting it with high-energy sound waves, again, basically breaking it apart. It sounds like it's working fantastically so far. See, I can – I can. sorry to interrupt you there, but, um, yeah, if for something that's a crystal structure, so a, a kidney stone is a crystal of urea and a number of other little things there, so to make that vibrate, I can see that shattering. But for something that's like a tumour that I assume has got some flexibility about it, this is – this is a big deal. And I think it would be a bit like we've talked about before with microwaves, for example, microwave ovens. Mm. They're oscillating water in there fast enough that it heats up. Mm. 
And I imagine that it would be something like that. I mean, mm. I can't imagine you're getting to extremely high temperatures because other parts of your body in the liver, the good parts, might start to burn. Yeah. But I imagine it's like that where it's just so much energy that it's just breaking it apart. They are very good, though, when you look at the actual process they do here, they're very good at basically locating that tumour and getting the sound waves to focus just on the tumour. What I don't know, and, and it hasn't been going long enough at this stage to know this, is whether or not it stays away. So, for example, we go and hit that oh, tumour, okay. we vibrate it, it's now gone, we can see it's been reduced in size dramatically or it's not even there, but chemotherapy is a little bit different in what it does to a tumour. So does this tumour then go, well, sure, you knocked me out last week, but I'm still here, a little tiny part of me. destroyed the cancer cells. That's, yeah. that's the question. And again, when I read some of the work on it there, there wasn't a definitive answer on that. So it's very early in its testing process now. There wasn't a definitive answer to say, yes, it definitely gets rid of it forever. But when you start to look at just a liver tumour, they start to talk about other things that you might be able to do as well. So, for example, prostate cancers, breast cancers, basically mm. any cancer where you could get good access to it, then you can probably do something similar. I'm not sure why they started with liver tumours first. There would be a reason. I don't know why it is. Well, perhaps, you know, if there is a risk of damaging other surrounding cells, liver cells tend to regenerate themselves a little bit better. And maybe, maybe that's it. So maybe it will be limited to just the liver. But it sounds like fascinating work. Oh, absolutely. And different ways to treat problems that we've had for a long time. And, for, uh, yeah, from what we gather, that um, there's not a lot of damage that uh, ultrasound waves do to you outside of, um, well, the, the targeted area. This is digging into something that's truly a blockbuster. Minecraft has just reached an earth-shattering milestone, selling over 300 million copies worldwide. This sandbox sensation isn't just about placing blocks and taking names. It's leaving gaming giants like Grand Theft Auto V in the pixel dust. So, Matt, clearly groundbreaking graphics are not the sole determinant for a good game. <laughs> no, and I get some little shivers down my spine when I hear the word Minecraft because at one stage when my kids were very much into it, there was a Minecraft song, and because they listened to it so many times, they knew the words, and so if we'd jump in the car for a trip, mm. they'd start, and I'd hear, go deep underground, and then that would be it. And I'm going, no, please, no. And for the next five hours of the car trip, <laughs> the kids would continue singing. And they had worked Just out. Just make you drive faster. And you <laughs> maybe. Earlier, yeah? They'd worked out their different parts to <laughs> sing. And I'm going, no, please, not the Minecraft song. But it does give you an indication. 300 million copies is just unbelievable. Phenomenal. Now, there's some competition for maybe other games that have sold more. But I'll get to that. So first place officially is Minecraft. Grand Theft Auto V, another popular game, 185 million copies. That's a lot. Mm. But then you think of something like Tetris, 425 million. Now, hold on. That sounds like a bigger number than 300. Yeah. But the technicality here is there have been different versions of Tetris. Oh. Therefore, it hasn't sold as many copies There's as only Minecraft. Minecraft. Only the one Minecraft copy. That's right. And then if you want to go further than that, you can go to Super Mario Brothers. The estimation there is the various versions of that have sold 800 million. Oh, of course. So again... So there are different versions of the right. same thing. Yeah, exactly okay. right. Yeah. So you can get a bit technical there if you like, but of a single version, and whether you're playing that on a phone or whether you're playing that on a computer, it's the same version of mm. that, all of those different versions. And it's simple mechanics, and it's um, 
very simple graphics. It's just, yeah, it's a phenomenon. Oh, absolutely, absolutely right. And it hasn't actually been around that long. There was an unfinished version that was available in 2009, and then in 2011, the first official version of Minecraft was released. Microsoft bought it a couple of years after, I think 2014 they bought it, and got a bargain. $3.42 billion was all they paid for Minecraft. Now, 300 million copies later, well, obviously some were sold before 2014, but it's probably a reasonable investment from Microsoft. If they sold it now, which I don't think they have any intention, mm. I reckon it would be worth more than $3.42 billion. Okay. So an interesting process. Most people have seen, come across, watched, played Minecraft at some stage. Well, I've, <coughs> I've seen it over people's shoulders, but I've, I've never played it myself. And that's what I mean. People have seen it. Even if you haven't played it, you've obviously Everyone seen it Everyone knows somewhere. what Minecraft is. You see one screenshot, you know... It'll be one of those things, pick this game, you would know straight away. And I'd probably be fair to say that if you saw something from Super Mario Brothers, you'd pretty much pick that it was Mario or Mario Kart or Super Mario. Yeah. There'd be some version of that as well. So Super Mario, best-selling franchise, over $800 million, but best-selling single game, $300 million for Minecraft. Minecraft. Well done. Are you tired of the daily drill with tangled cables cluttering your bathroom countertop? What if I told you that you could keep your pearly whites pristine without plugging in your electric toothbrush? This electrifying advancement is making Nikola Tesla's dream a reality. Y-Charge is beaming enough energy through the air to charge your electric toothbrush from up to, get this, nine metres away. That's a big bathroom. Matt, you could probably have the charger at the end of the hallway. <laughs> you could probably put just a couple around your house. Now, Nikola Tesla did have the idea of wireless power. Yeah. yeah that was, he had a couple of really big ideas that really didn't come to fruition. No. And the whole idea from his perspective of wireless power was to transmit this out into the atmosphere. For and free. People, for free. Well, that was a, another minor part. but And that's probably part of the problem as well because someone like General Electric – probably said, well, that's great, but how do I charge Well, General Electric, wasn't that um, Edison? It was Westinghouse. I know. Sorry, you're right. Yes. So Westinghouse Westinghouse is saying, yeah, that's, I like your idea, Nicola, but I'd like to make some money from this. (laughs) And who's going to pay for all the setup of this to be able to generate some income? And from what I gather, Tesla was just about the science. He didn't care about the business. Um, And while he might have made some money at one stage, he actually died a pauper. And I think that's the thing. He just loved the technology. Mm. I think there's still some problems, though, with the technology in Mm. terms of the amount of power you might lose. Now, I'm imagining that you would lose power to the inverse of the square. I did wonder whether it might have been cubed. No, no, no. It's uh, the inverse square. So, yeah, yeah, and and you're right. So it's just radiating that power out in, um, well, 720 degrees. So you do that. So you say, let's have some power here in one spot radiated out, you're losing it to basically the inverse square. So even if he came around the issue around the free part of it Mm. and said, that's fine, we'll work out some way that we're going to supply power for free, the amount of power you would have at one spot to provide power for the city, Mm. then you'd say... That would be an enormous amount of radiation. That's right. And an enormous amount of power lost. Basically, you've got to generate that power in the first place. So forget about that for a moment, but Tesla's concept here is used with exactly this. So we charge, why charge, it's spelled W-I hyphen charge. It's an Israeli company, and they've got this toothbrush that the base of it that you would normally plug into a normal power socket, a normal GPO, you plug that in, and you sit your toothbrush on top to charge it up. Okay, no big deal there. The base of this one, though, doesn't plug into anything. 
It just sits on the bench. Yeah. You've got to install a transmitter, say, for example, in your ceiling. Again, as you say, that nine metres roughly, you can have it in there. And it sits there and it picks up enough power from the air. Now, keep in mind that we're talking about something here that uses about three watts of power. And I think that's the secret. So you can have something that might be transmitting a reasonable amount of power, maybe 100 watts, for example, not going to do too much damage, not wasting too much power, mm. to be able to have you with the convenience of sitting your toothbrush charger anywhere in your bathroom. Mm, do we really need it? Is it a, <laughs> is it a, a solution <laughs> looking for a problem to solve? <laughs> it might be, but I can see... But I can see some people are going to go, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, I can see the next step being much more exciting. So we're talking about maybe three watts for a toothbrush. But mobile phones, wireless chargers for mobile phones, typically are about 15 watts or 20 mm. watts, depending on the model. So maybe having a room in your house that your phone just charges by being in that room. So imagine a mobile phone model that comes out with this charging coil built into the phone, if they can make it small enough, and then you walk into the room and it just starts charging your phone. So put it in your office, for example, put it wherever, and you just have that charging. So my question is, what sort of electromagnetic radiation is actually being emanated? Is it radio waves? Is it microwaves? It would have to be radio waves because it would be, I imagine generating enough energy that it creates in a coil in mm. the charging base or in the coil in a phone, if you did that, that it creates uh, electric fee or electric current in that coil. what we don't want is people um, having to wear aluminium foil <laughs> no, hats. No, you're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so while it's only using three watts for the device that it needs, you're probably not too worried about that. And obviously I'm talking about radio waves, yeah, here, which yeah. we've got exposure to. We've talked about that before. But if you wanted to be able to run your oven in the kitchen wirelessly, you might need to have a lot more power and that might be a bit scary for that. I should have done the calculation before the show to use the inverse square law and look at how so much power you would for need. another story. That's right. Well, there you go. There's a story for next week maybe. But for nine metres away, how much power would you need? For three watts, that's fine. But for an oven that might be three kilowatts yeah, <laughs> rather than three watts, that might be a bit scarier. But I, I literally can see this happening with mobile phones. I can see someone coming up with the idea of a mobile phone. And well, I, I thought the idea. idea was there not long ago, um, or maybe 15 years ago perhaps, people were saying, oh, we should start to investigate this. Because I remember having a conversation with, with an uncle about this, and he was saying, oh, well, I'm very concerned about just how much radiation is going to be beaming through your house. Yeah. But, of course, you should only be worried about it if it's microwaves and it's super intense, focused on a little area, or if it's the high, um, the high frequency stuff, the the UV or higher. Yeah, so the, the ionizing radiation. Yeah. But again, I think you'll see. So we've got wireless chargers now. They're commonly used with mobile phones, but they're obviously very close to each other. It's the same sort of concept, I'd imagine, but just further away. Mm. So yeah, you, and you do know we do lose a little bit of energy when we have a wireless charger that sits basically back-to-back with something, but the further away you go, inverse square law, that gets a bit interesting. So keep an eye for this one. Okay, folks, are you ready to feel the vibe? I mean, actually feel it? We're going to dive deep into the world of haptic technology. There's another new word for you, where even those who can't hear can still rock out some fat, and that's P-H-A-T, fat, beats. It's not just a breakthrough, it's a vibe through. Matt, 
If I said this sounds like one of uh, one for the Def Leppard fans, does that sound like a dad joke, or should I just pack my bags and cancel myself? No, no, that's, I like it. I like it. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> I haven't liked your vibe through. You know, that's a two in one go there. So haptic we see in mobile phones when. Apple was trying to get a phone that they could make water resistant and have a certain IP rating on that. The biggest issue they found was, this is back in the days when you had a button at the ho- at the bottom of the home screen, mm. not all screen. The gap around that, where you'd press your thumb on for your fingerprint, for example, that was the biggest issue, trying to waterproof that. So to fix that problem, they changed that from being a button to being something that didn't have a gap around it. It wasn't a button, but when you pressed on that, you got some haptic feedback. You could have sworn that button was being depressed, but it wasn't. Mm. It was just a flat surface. When you pressed on that flat surface, it gave you a slight vibration that made you feel like something had happened there. So we use haptics now in lots of things that we do. You'll even have your watch on, it'll vibrate. So there's a bit of haptic technology going on there when a phone call comes in, that type of thing. But again, this is what's great about technology and society. You and I may not think about how a deaf person might have to experience certain things, but someone out there is thinking about that. Maybe it's a deaf person, maybe it's someone hard of hearing, maybe it's someone that's got someone that's hard of hearing, but someone's thinking about it. You go to a rock concert, you can feel the vibration going through your body. You can feel those bass sounds going through your body. If you couldn't hear the sound, you could still feel some of those. So you think, oh, someone that's hard of hearing could go along and still enjoy that, but it's a pretty basic level of enjoyment. Mm. So we've now got vests, relatively inexpensive vests. You can put the vest on and it will pick up the sound, the different frequencies, and then use haptic technology to effectively vibrate the vest in a different way so you could actually yeah, feel right. like you're getting <laughs> an experience there. So go to a concert, you see people walking around with a vest on and they're dancing away, they're doing the vibe, whatever it might be, but at least experiencing the sound at a different level. So researchers said, well, that's great. That means people hard of hearing can experience a concert, go out there with their friends and just have a good time with their friends while the friends are listening, they're feeling the music. But they then started thinking, well, hold on, could we use this technology to actually help people communicate? Now, there's a lot of words, what do we say, 10,000 words that the average person might know. Could it get to the stage where 10,000 words were somehow translated into different vibrations wearing a vest? At this stage, the researchers are saying no, but you might be able to get some different ways of vibrating in combination with some lip reading. But yeah, with lip reading, yeah. Or maybe with some hand signs as well, but even just lip reading. You come and talk to me, I'm hard of hearing, I'm wearing a vest, I'm thinking I'm just about making out what you're saying with your lips, but then I learn from the different vibrations my vest makes the type of words you might be saying, and I might be able to have a conversation with you that's a basic level conversation. Not 10,000 words, stick to maybe a basic vocabulary of 1,000 words, for example, I might be able to do that. So started out as a good way to enjoy some music, but now maybe it's a way for you to actually have a conversation with people. It's just getting better and better, some of this technology. technology. Are you ready to face the future, folks? Because the future might already be facing you. We are diving into the facial recognition technology that is revolutionising, but also unsettling, the travel and tourism industry. It's a topic that got many of us grinning, frowning, and maybe even a little bit concerned. Matt, this is a development that we actually talked a bit about last week's episode, uh, about Changi Airport in Singapore, yeah? Correct, and that was talking about some pretty scary things with international travel, not needing a passport, 
And we're seeing examples of this happening in lots of small areas now. For example, cruise ships. Now, I've been on cruise ships, and you go off the cruise ship when there's a day. Okay, we're, we're going on to shore today, so you can go on if you like. Make sure you scan out your pass, your ticket, yeah. whatever it is, as you go off. So when you come back on and you scan back on, we say, yes, we had 3,000 passengers at the beginning of the day, and we've still got 3,000. We can set sail. Or... We've got one oh, missing. We've got one. <laughs> two missing. It's always a couple. And you see, you can look them on YouTube chasing after this boat that's pulling out. That's, go, oh, that's no, right. I'm on the dock here. <laughs> so that's all good. And I know I've been on some cruises where I would have liked to have taken some of those passes and scanned back on for those people because we don't want them to get back on the boat. Sometimes <laughs> they can be a bit loud and obnoxious. But doing it with facial scans sounds like it's more reliable. Sounds like it's not one of those things where I lost my pass on shore today or I forgot to scan off or whatever. So using facial Facial scans, cruise ships are already doing this now as you're walking off. It's picking up all those faces as you go off the ship. Mm. And then when you get back on, picking up, yes, we know we've got everyone on board again because we've scanned all those faces. Theme parks, going to a theme park, don't have the wristband on that you might have or don't have some sort of pass around your neck. You go into a theme park, you pay at the beginning of the day and they scan your face. And as you go to the different rides, beep, you haven't been authorised for this ride, or <laughs> yes, you're allowed to go on this ride. So you come back the next day, sorry, you're not authorised. So these things are happening. Now, that all sounds convenient to me anyway. It sounds like it's easier yeah. to pass through. They are doing it at airports, as we talked about last week. Changi starts next year, but some other airports are starting with some basic domestic travel, for example, not international travel. There's some going with domestic travel. Again, turn up at the airport, there's my face. We have to correlate your face with who you are in terms of your ticket. But once we've done that once, it's all good. Privacy experts, of course, are concerned about all of this because mm. when that ship scanned your face and then scanned your face on and off, at the end of that cruise, what do they do with your face? Yeah. Do they keep that picture of your face? They've got your details because you might have been in international waters. They know your date of birth. They know your full name. They know where you live. And they know your face. Well, they've got enough to steal your identity. What the heck? Let's make a new identity for this person altogether. We've got all the details we need. So that's a bit scary. What happens when information gets into naughty people's hands? That's right. So these companies say once they finish that cruise, once they finish on the theme park, whatever it might be, they delete all that data, but oh, do they? There. Yeah. there is trust there, that's right. Or to someone, while they've got that data, I'll just take a copy of this because I might use that later. I might sell it on the dark web for a little bit of money. Who knows? But I love the convenience. Yeah. But is it is it about that convenient future? Is it about a privacy nightmare? The jury is still out on this one, definitely. I think it will stay out until the time when we have a major breach and then everyone will say, no, forget the convenience. I'm happy to carry a physical document with me <laughs> and get away with actually using that. And when there face. is a major breach, it'll be, oh, we're really sorry. <laughs> there's right. nothing we can do. <laughs> you can't, you can change your driver's license number. You can change your passport number. Changing your face, that mm. might be a little bit more difficult. All right, people, we're now looking literally into the future of portable displays, and they are not just a flash in the pan. It's a full-on espresso shot. We're talking about espresso displays, the Australian startup that's brewed up the world's most powerful portable display. Matt, how much display is too much display? Oh, no, 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 no. no. There is no <laughs> such thing, James. <laughs> Everyone's getting used to using two screens for their for their work or whatever now. I think uh, two screens is very, very common. Yeah. And I don't know where I'd be without my two screens. And the problem is when I travel... 
I'm down to one screen. And that's exactly the problem that these guys had. A couple of university students they were when they started this business up and they were finding that when they were over at lectures or over at each other's house, it's one screen. They go back into their home where they live and they have their two screens set up and, oh, it's so much nicer. I can share more information or look at a bigger Mm. screen. So they started up and they first of all started out with a nice little 13-inch screen, a little portable screen that you could pack up easily and take with you when you took your notebook and just plug it in and away you go. And they then grew it up to be a 15-inch screen. They've now got a 17.3-inch screen 450 nit brightness, so it's a reasonable sort of well, brightness on the screen. To backpack size, isn't it? And that's the problem, the portability. But it gets worse or better, depending on which way you look at it. This actually comes with a magnetic stand with a big battery pack in it, enough battery power to run your notebook and the screen for a full day. All oh, right. So that sounds oh, wow, great. Full day. But then it starts to sound like heavier yeah. and a bit harder to carry around. I love the idea of being on the plane and doing some work with two screens, but gee, that sounds like I'm carrying on a fair-sized backpack onto the plane. Does it pass through the little check that you're meant yeah. to do? Well, no one checks it anyway, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but it does sound a bit clumsy. Sorry to the person next to me, near me. I've got these two screens <laughs> later here. You right. might have used your tray table. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I, I love the idea of it, uh, uh, and I haven't bought one yet. I keep looking and thinking, I'm going to buy a second screen because my main thing is when I get somewhere and set up in a motel, if I'm at a conference or whatever, a couple of days, and I come back each night at the motel, and I sit there and work on that one screen and go, oh, I'm just going to leave this thing I've got to do now until I get back home with a couple of screens because <laughs> it's just so much easier having yeah. two screens set up. You there don't realise how much um, shifting between windows that you do yep. until you've got two screens running. Yeah, that's right. So you end up with a whole office set up in your your hotel room. Yeah. Uh, and, and even at a conference sometimes, I'm sure there'll be people who'd love a portable screen to set up at the conference and have the two screens there. I like the idea of it. I've got to pull my finger out and actually go and get a second screen to use as I travel around, but I, I just haven't found the right one yet. I'm waiting for perfect. Maybe I should just make do with good enough for the time being and then wait till perfect comes along in some new model. But anyway, I like the idea of it, and let's see what we do. I'll talk about it when I finally pull my finger out. <laughs> and just like an aglet on a shoelace, that ends another episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Pretty much all good news today, Matt. Nice work. It is an aglet. That is a nice one. So aglet refers to a particular part. Little of, plastic end of a shoelace. No, but I thought. Oh. I thought. You're right. That is. But I thought there was a part of the human body that, as we age and deteriorate, I thought there was a part called an aglet there as well. Oh no! Hang on. A telomere on the end of your. Uh, is it the telomere on the end of your chromosomes? And as you acts like an aglet. That's right. So maybe that's what I was thinking of there. But so as the aglet deteriorates. So does the um, the shoelace, the, or so does the the telomere. Chromosome. Is that the right word? Is that the telomere? Telomere. Of, yeah, yeah, I think that's the one. Yeah. Yeah. So if we could stop telomeres deteriorating, we could produce uh, uh, some sort of anti aging process, couldn't we? Yeah, that's one step that they're trying to work at. Actually, we can't yeah. even get it right on shoelaces, so <laughs> it's going to be pretty hard on the human body. So. All right, I think it's time I got into some Minecraft. See what the, all the hubbub is about. Keeping up with the latest trends. That's what I'm all about. Now, thanks for tuning in again, folks. Wherever you are on this vast planet of ours, we're always grateful for your company and thank you for sparing us 45 minutes of your week. I'm your host, James Eddy, and Matt and I look forward to catching you again in another week's time for another Mint Condition episode of Tech Talk. Hope you have a productive week. We'll see you then.